Colossians chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 7 to verse 18, Colossians 4, 7 through 18, as we finish this great epistle about Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And before we read God's word, let's pray and ask him to bless it to us this morning. Father, we thank you for every letter that you ordained to be written, every word that you superintended by your spirit through the pens of apostles and prophets. We thank you for every genre and every book. We thank you for every doctrine. We thank you, Lord, because every part of it is necessary for life and godliness. And we pray that as we come this morning to the end of this book, that, Father, you would show us the spiritual riches that are contained even in this this final section of Colossians. We pray, Lord Jesus, that in the preaching of the word, your people would be transformed, that we would be changed, that you would accomplish the purposes for which you send it out, and that you would give us a greater love for the inerrant, infallible word of God, that you would make us to hear very loudly your voice, even in a portion of scripture, Lord, that many might skip over. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in us, and that we would be glorified with you on account of this word. Oh God, we pray that you would bless your people, that your voice that once shook earth would from heaven again shake not only the earth, but the heavens and the earth. And we pray that you would humble us under it, that we might tremble under it, and that we might be built up by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 7. There the apostle says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justus, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archibus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you all. One of the marked features of the Puritan movement of the 16th and the 17th century was that it was a movement fueled by a number of men that God had saved and redeemed and by the power of the gospel had brought out of spiritual darkness and had brought them into a state of spiritual life and zeal for the advancement of God's kingdom. And many of the Puritans, many of the British Puritans came together and they formed what has been often called a spiritual brotherhood. 
It was a mutual dependence and reliance on one another, on their writings, on their prayers, on their labors, to see the kingdom of God advance in a place where it was not advancing. It's a misconception to think that the Puritans were people with big churches, with lots of people that liked to read deep theology and were spiritually thriving. In fact, the Puritans were a bunch of men that had come out of dark past, including witchcraft, drunkenness, rebellion, all kinds of false doctrines, superstitions of Roman Catholicism. God had shined the light of the gospel into their hearts. And the the churches that they were called to pastor were not churches full of spiritually vibrant people. In fact, they were churches full of spiritually complacent people or empty churches. But the spiritual brotherhood, as they came to be known, came together and they realized that if they came together for the gospel, they would see God giving them the pulpits and in turn giving them the people. And the Puritans knew that as a spiritual brotherhood, that it was not enough to have the word of God in the pulpits, but that they had to take the the word from the pulpits into the homes and then it would go into the hearts of the people. And the Puritans came together and they prayed and they they fasted and they they went deep into God's word and they preached far more than the preaching we know today and they saw God's singular blessing fall on a nation that had been under darkness for so long. And it's interesting, when you look at the lives of a lot of the Puritans, you see how connected they were. You see just how, in the Gospel, how much love they had for one another, how much care they had for one another. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, it's interesting as you survey the, the early period of the Puritan movement that it's, it is almost possible to create a spiritual family tree of some of the most notable Puritans of the 17th century. One only needs to know a little bit about their lives to discover how deeply they are interconnected. Through one, another would be converted, and by reading his book, another would be converted. The family names of the Puritans, William Googe, John Dodd, Thomas Hooker, Cotton Mather, Richard Sibbs, John Preston, John Cotton, William Perkins, Thomas Goodwin, William Ames, Paul Baines, John Owen, Richard Baxter, as you read their biographies, you realize that there is a spiritual progeny here, a spiritual family tree. God was binding them together with a common vision and a common burden, a common prayer life, and therefore a common goal in the ministry of the Word of God. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because the Puritans didn't invent and they didn't scheme a spiritual brotherhood They had a spiritual brotherhood because their hearts had so been shaped by the gospel. And as they looked in the scriptures, they saw that that's exactly what we find in the letters in the New Testament, that there was a spiritual brotherhood. There were brothers and sisters united by the common faith in the gospel. And even the ministers were united in such a way that they labored together for the well-being of the people of God, that the word of God would take root in the hearts and the minds of people that it had not taken root in and that it would continue to bear fruit in their lives. They even shared pulpits. And what we see in this passage as we come to the end of Colossians is that there is a spiritual brotherhood. Paul's in prison. Paul has written this letter from prison, and he's there with faithful brothers that he is sending to bear news of him and word from him to the churches that he had been ministering to. The Apostle Paul was a man whose life had been so changed by the gospel and the the fellow ministers around him that they were brought together in the spiritual brotherhood that was the foundation of the first century church. Without that brotherhood, without that common unified family and that unified ministry to the churches, there would be no Christian church. It was so essential. It was so essential to have the spiritual brotherhood that Paul, here at the end of this letter, 
feels that it's necessary to mention details about nine, nine brothers that were actively involved in the life of the church in Colossae, many of whom were not from the church in Colossae. Remember, Paul had not even seen the church. He had not met the people there. He had written this letter to them and the Laodiceans, but it was Epaphras who had taken the gospel to them. It was Epaphras who was there ministering to them. But Paul, writing this letter, sets out now for us at the close a description of this necessary spiritual brotherhood. We're going to see today just two things. First, we're going to see how the gospel brings redemption to the lives of ministers, and secondly, how gospel created the spiritual brotherhood for the well-being of the church, how the gospel brings redemption to the lives of ministers, and how the gospel creates a spiritual brotherhood for the well-being of the church. Notice that Paul there in verse 7 tells us about this guy Tychicus. Now, we're not going to have time to go through each and every figure in this list, but he tells us three things about Tychicus. First, he tells us that Tychicus is with him in prison. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord, and that Paul is sending him to the Colossians. Now, what's most interesting about all this passage, and that you might miss it, you might miss it because Paul is speaking about others, is the redemption that Paul has experienced himself. Remember, not long before this, Paul was the great persecutor of the church. Paul's singular mission was to kill Christians. That was Paul's singular mission as an unregenerate Pharisee, was to destroy the kingdom of Jesus. Now he's in prison, and Paul's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking, first of all, about his own well-being. He's thinking, first of all, about the well-being of people he had once despised. The grace of God and the gospel so came to the Apostle Paul. What Christ did at Calvary so impacted the life of Paul. The Damascus Road experience that Paul experienced and the life-changing conversion and calling that Paul underwent so changed the Apostle that now in chains in prison, he is not thinking about himself, but he is thinking about the well-being of believers who have professed faith in Jesus. Jesus and have received the gospel. And you see in that, that everything Paul has written in the letter actually works. You see in that, that everything Paul has written in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 about what Christ has done actually works. It's interesting that this little portion, with all these individuals named, you might say, why even read that? Why would Paul include that? Because Paul is telling us that the gospel works And it works at the very foundation of the individuals whose lives it had changed, who had once been in great darkness and now were brought into spiritual light and who were laboring to see that gospel spread. So much so that in the words of in the words of John Calvin, and I'm not going to find this. Yes, I will. In the words of John Calvin, that Paul made care for himself a secondary matter. Paul made care for himself. A secondary matter. And notice, Paul is so concerned about the Colossians that he wants to send fellow ministers to them so that they'll know how he's doing and how the ministry is going and what they can be praying for. Remember, Paul's just said, pray for me. Pray that the gospel is spread. Pray. Labor with me. And now Paul's saying, I want to make sure that you're cared for, too. I want to make sure that you understand everything that's going on and what role you play in this. And so Paul says, I'm sending to you Tychicus. And then notice that Paul mentions a second figure there in verse 9. He tells us that this Tychicus, this faithful brother, this fellow minister, this servant of Christ, would be accompanied by a guy named Onesimus. Now, 
If you've ever read the little letter to Philemon, you would have come across this name. Onesimus was a slave who had run away from a Christian home, who had met the Apostle Paul in prison, who had been converted by Paul's witness, and who was sent back by Paul to Philemon. And Paul says about this Onesimus, this is what he says about him in Philemon verses 11 and following. Formerly, he's writing to Philemon about Onesimus. Paul says, formerly he was useless to you. But now, indeed, he is useful to me and to you and me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness may not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And then Paul says about Onesimus, receive him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, this is marvelous. This is marvelous because what Paul's saying now, Paul is caring for the life of a church through a guy who was a former runaway slave from a Christian home who had been converted. And what you see in that is the hope and the power of the gospel. The gospel had come to this man who would have been despised by that civilization, a man who had no rights, no privileges, who belonged in the household of another, was an indentured servant, and the gospel had changed him when he was running from Jesus probably running from the Christian home to get away from the gospel, had met Paul in God's providence. And when his life was changed by the gospel, Onesimus became a beloved brother and a, a, a laborer, a co-laborer for the sake of the gospel. And so you see God's grace in Paul's life, in Tychicus's life, in Onesimus's life. And then notice in verse 10, that Paul tells us about Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner. And there that, that word prisoner is actually prisoner of war that they had been taken violently for the gospel as prisoners against the state, that he was there with Paul and he was greeting the church with Paul. He was supporting Paul there. And, and notice that he mentions Mark. That's the Mark that wrote the gospel, Mark. Why would it be important that Paul would mention Mark? Why mention Mark? Mark, in Acts chapter 15, had abandoned Paul. Mark wouldn't go on a journey with Paul, and they'd had a division, and Paul had said, I don't want John Mark, and now he is in the gospel, seeing how the gospel has renewed Mark's heart and his zeal and his care and his willingness to serve, and Paul is now saying, Mark greets you. And then there's the beloved physician, verse 14. And you see how the gospel has come to one who had a lucrative job. He was a doctor. And how the gospel had transformed Luke, Luke who wrote Luke and Acts who wanted to convince his, his friends with lucrative positions and callings of the, of the truthfulness of the gospel. And Luke is called the beloved physician because Luke was there with Paul. And when Paul was beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead, it was Luke there bandaging his wounds and caring for him, traveling with him through all his travels. The gospel had so changed his life that what Luke wanted to do was live for Christ and support the ministry of the gospel. Now, we could go through everybody else in this list and there would be the same stories of how the gospel had transformed. And then we could go through this congregation and we could go one by one and we could say, how has the gospel transformed you? How has the gospel changed your life? What were you prior to being in Christ? What were you and how does it look now? Does your life look different? Do you look like someone like Luke or Onesimus that once had a position but now are called out into service in Christ's kingdom? It doesn't mean that you have to leave your calling to become a minister. Luke didn't leave his calling to become a minister. But individuals were redeemed and the gospel worked 
in the lives of these people. And it must work. There's a possibility it hasn't worked in your life. I don't know everybody's spiritual conditions here. There's actually, there's actually an intimation of someone whose life it didn't work in, in this chapter, when you notice that Paul says in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Now, Demas was a minister, one of the early church ministers. He'll be mentioned in the book of Philemon. And then he'll be mentioned in Timothy as one who apostatized and departed, having loved this present world. There's one in this list in whom the gospel didn't work. And it wasn't just a person coming once a month to church to listen. It was a minister. It was someone who was in gospel ministry. And the gospel had not worked in his life. But all the others, you see the marked transition. You see the greatness of what... Christ has done in them and what Christ is doing through them and how they are now unified. And secondly, and, and this is really the point of this passage, that, that there's a spiritual brotherhood. Why would that be important? Well, because the Apostle Paul, when he was converted, probably lost his family. He probably lost all of his friends. He probably became hated by those he was admired by. And, you know, Jesus had said in the Gospels, he had said, to Peter, when Peter said, look, we've left everything. What do we get? And Jesus said, there's no one who leaves houses or lands or fathers or mothers or brothers or sisters or wives or sons or daughters who will not receive in this life a hundredfold. And Paul was experientially realizing, you know, when Paul was converted, there's one of those little beautiful intimations of the radical transformation, the kingdom of Satan to the power of God, the kingdom of darkness into the light of God's knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, because Paul is blinded and he's on his knees in, in a man's house who would have been afraid of him a few days before. And that man's name is Ananias. And he comes and the Lord sends him to Paul and he says, brother Saul, brother Saul. Receive your sight. That no sooner is Paul's heart changed that he is part of the spiritual brotherhood. You know, there are, and I have met, many people who, when they're honest, it's one thing I actually appreciate about staunch unbelievers is that they're often honest. Um, and when they're honest, they'll tell you they don't want to follow Christ because what it'll mean, they have to give up. I've had people point blank to my face tell me, and whether you are 20 or 30 or 50 or 70 or 80, it doesn't matter. You will give up things when you turn to Christ. You will give up social status. I gave up all my friends. I gave up a whole world of friends. I had friends asking me not to leave when I was converted. And I gave them all up because of Jesus. And I have received a family a 100,000-fold. You are brought into a, a family of believers who are a better family than any family flesh and blood could ever give. And Paul knew that. And notice how Paul even speaks about these other brothers. Notice Tychicus there in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother. Notice the affection in the gospel, the affection that the gospel produces. Listen, we should be able to look at Christians, true believers, in, who have had their lives changed by the gospel and have such longing and affection to be with them. That is a fruit of the gospel. That Christ in you is Christ in me, is Christ in this one, and Christ in that one, that we would have an affection for one another and a longing for one another. And Paul says, Tychicus is a beloved brother. And he speaks about the other brethren as if they are brothers in Christ. He speaks about Luke in verse 14 as the beloved physician. 
And this brotherhood, this spiritual brotherhood, is a brotherhood of people whose hearts have been knit together in love. You know, I think you'll agree, one of the saddest things about churches is when you see divisions in churches over, dare I say this, I know there's children in the room, stupid things. Stupid things. Churches that are divided over stupidity. Because people do not realize the greatness of the gospel and what the gospel does and how Christ knits us together in love. And so this one asserts themselves and that one asserts themselves and this group asserts themselves and they divide against this group and the kingdom of God doesn't look like a spiritual brotherhood. It looks like a wasteland of discord. And it's a dishonor. And then when we come to the Bible, you see Paul who has nothing. Paul who's in chains in prison. He doesn't even have his freedom. And yet Paul is free in Christ. And Paul has a brotherhood. There's a great painting of the Apostle Paul. And in the painting, he's in prison and the light is shining through the bars of the prison window. And it's shining on Paul, but there are no bars reflected from the light. The light is coming in full force. And the The point of that painting is that while Paul was in prison, while Paul had nothing and he was in bonds, he was free in Christ and he was part of a spiritual brotherhood. And even from prison, listen to this. Do you think that you can't be effective in a difficult job, in a difficult marriage, in a difficult circumstance? I'm not saying we don't look at difficulties and call them what they are. But if you think you can't be effective in those situations, think about Paul. Paul's in prison for the gospel, and he is working diligently for the well-being of the church with a number of other spiritual brothers who are committed in the same cause because they love Christ and because Christ has redeemed them and knit them together in love. There's a wisdom here, too. You know, I often think when I look at certain ministries, and we live in a celebrity culture, we live in a celebrity age where... People pick their celebrity pastor and the celebrity person that they want to listen to tell them about God's word. We don't need celebrity pastors. We need a spiritual brotherhood. The New Testament church was not advanced through celebrity pastors. It was advanced through a man in prison and a bunch of other spiritual brothers who were united in a common cause for the well-being of the people of God. And notice, notice the way that Paul acknowledges the labors of others. Paul is not just concerned in this brotherhood about his own work. Notice how he speaks about Epaphras. Notice what he says in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Paul is rejoicing in the labors of his brothers. There's not a jealousy. There's not a territorialism. I think another sad thing that we see in our day so much, and I'm not sure why we see it so prevalently. It clearly was in Paul's day. There were false apostles and there there were preachers that wanted to preach to add affliction to Paul's chains, Philippians chapter 1 and 2. I don't understand oftentimes territorialism in the ministry. Because when you read about the spiritual brotherhood, Paul is rejoicing that Epaphras is on his knees praying fervently for the Colossians. There's there's nothing territorial about that. Paul's not bringing any glory to himself. These brothers are not bringing any glory to themselves. Notice how Paul speaks about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. A servant of Christ Jesus. The mentality of the spiritual brotherhood was that they were servants of Christ Jesus. And beloved, 
You cannot serve someone without seeking the honor and well-being and glory of that person. If you take on a servant mentality, you will automatically say, I want whoever I am serving to excel and to get the glory. And the spiritual brotherhood was a brotherhood built on laboring together as servants of Christ Jesus. And notice, notice that Paul actually wants to see other ministers in this brotherhood thrive. Notice in verse 17, it's kind of an interesting way for him to end this letter. He says, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. There was a minister in Colossae who was a lazy bum. He wasn't doing his job. He was sitting around. It was known that he wasn't fulfilling the ministry of the word. He wasn't laboring diligently. And Paul tells the Colossians that for the well-being of the church and for the well-being of the spiritual brotherhood, tell Archippus to fulfill his ministry in the Lord. You know, I think that there is a, there's kind of an irony here. I think oftentimes when we look at pastors and we look at, at churches, we think, well, who are we to tell this guy what to do? And Paul says, essentially, Archippus is one of us. Archippus has received a calling from the Lord. Archippus is a servant of Christ, just like Epaphras, just like Tychicus, just like Onesimus, just like Luke, just like Mark, just like Aristarchus, and that Archippus needs to fulfill his ministry in the Lord. And you see in that, you see in this. Now listen carefully. Paul is not being mean-spirited. He is not... He's not just trying to assert a type A drive for other people. Paul is wanting to see the gospel continue to work through the spiritual brotherhood in the church, in the lives of God's people. Turn back to the beginning of Colossians, chapter 1. It's fitting for us to go back here as we close. I want you to notice the way that Paul... Begins his prayer in verse 3. He said, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. You see the book ends. Paul starts, We're praying for you. He ends, We're caring for you. The whole book. And then he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now listen carefully. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. What Paul is saying is that the gospel continues working. It continues bearing fruit. That Christ crucified and risen continues to impact the lives of people, even ministers, even those that are not fulfilling their calling in the Lord, that the gospel and the grace of God would continue to work and that fruit would be born and that the church would be like a glorious thing yielding a harvest for Jesus Christ. And that's not just the burden of ministers. You may be sitting there and saying, okay, this letter ends with a lot about gospel ministry. That ought to be a burden for you and for me, that we would see fruit born in the gospel. You know what? I think it's as we are involved in each other's lives, we often see where the gospel's not working itself out the most in each other. We're usually quick to see it in each other first and in ourselves. And it's as we're involved lovingly in the lives of others that we want to see the gospel work in their lives. 
We want to see Christians thrive, don't we? Paul doesn't want to see Archippus fail. Be very easy. If Paul was territorial, it would have been very easy for him to be like, forget Archippus, I'm going forward with my ministry. But someone who has had their heart changed by the gospel longs to see the fruit of the gospel born in the lives of others. Where there's weakness, where there's error, where there's theological error, where there's pride, where there's improper speech, loving one another, bolstering one another. Paul tells the church, you play a role in that. We are part of the spiritual brotherhood. The brotherhood is not just the group of ministers. It is the church of the living God. It is believers, sons and daughters, knit together in love. Notice how Paul says that in Colossians 1. He says, since I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel keeps working. The gospel keeps producing fruit. And the gospel is what enables us to love one another and to see the fruit of the gospel born in each other's lives. And notice how Paul ends this. Notice what he says there at the end of the book. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, that's not... That's not a shorthand like when we sign a letter off and we're like sincerely or blessings and we're just, we're just saying something because we want it to sound good before we write our name and not have that void. Paul is wishing for them grace. He is wishing grace be multiplied, that they live under the grace of the gospel, that they live in light of Jesus Christ, that they continue laboring for Jesus Christ, that they are growing in Christ, that fruit is being born. This book is a book about gospel fruitfulness. And that happens through the lives of individuals changed, brotherhoods expanded, and care and love within that brotherhood for one another. Let me say this. You may think, you may think you're fine. You may think spiritually you're doing fine. You may want people to leave you alone. You need the gospel. You need the grace of God in the gospel of Christ to humble, to convict, to restore. You may look at others and you may think, that person, they're useless. Just like an Onesimus. Like an Apostle Paul. He would have looked pretty useless to the Christian church before the Damascus Road. Onesimus, Paul said, was useless, now he's useful. That's my testimony. I was useless, I am now useful. That's your testimony if you're in Jesus. You were useless to the kingdom of God. You are now useful. And that means when the gospel comes and one life is changed, the church prospers and grows and thrives and the brotherhood that God has established, the family of God expands and and it becomes a fruit-bearing, wonderful thing to God's glory. I want to close by telling you about a man who was the grandfather of the Puritans. His name was William Perkins. He was the... He was sort of deemed the beginning of the Puritans and the Puritan movement. He wrote a commentary on Galatians. He wrote a little booklet called The Golden Chain about the blessings of salvation. William Perkins was into natural magic. He was into witchcraft. He studied at Christ College in in England. He um, had an incredible education. And then God got a hold of William Perkins' heart and life. And the entire Puritan movement as we know it, with all the misconceptions that the world wants to paint it with, That great movement of the greatest theologians the world has ever seen and some of the greatest blessing the church has ever known was almost single-handedly started by a guy who was into witchcraft having his heart changed. The Christian church 
and the church in Colossae was strengthened and built up and enlarged and thrived, thrived because God changed the heart of one man, the Apostle Paul. Listen, read through, read through the New Testament. I want to challenge you to read through the book of Acts and look at how, how many times there is one individual converted and then a whole church is formed. Lydia, down by the river, with some ladies praying. She's converted. A crazy slave girl has a demon cast out of her. And a prisoner gets afraid of an earthquake, and that's the church plan in Philippi. One person here, one person there, and God creates out of them an entire spiritual brotherhood for the advancement of the gospel. You're part of that if you're in Jesus. You are part of that. You belong to something so much bigger than New Covenant, so much bigger than the church in America, so much bigger than the church on earth. You belong to a church in heaven and on earth. You are part of the general assembly, the household of God. Your citizenship is in heaven. You belong to the glorious company of angels and archangels and all of the saints who have ever gone before you. You are part of that worldwide, heavenly, spiritual brotherhood. I hope that God will... Take the things that we've studied in this book and we'll press them, press them into us and that fruit will be born and that he will be honored and that lives will be changed and that this church will thrive, that this church, this body, that we will care for one another and that the gospel will spread through us and out from us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the, church, what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in us. We thank you that when we were lost, that you sought us, Lord Jesus, when we were strangers, wandering from your fold, that you rescued us and interposed your precious blood. We thank you that as you did with the Apostle Paul and with Tychicus and Onesimus and Luke and Mark and that host of people in, listed in this chapter, that, Father, as you changed their hearts and lives and gathered them together into a brotherhood, that you would do that for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us to realize the privileges we have as belonging to the family of God and that you would give us much love and care for one another, that we would long to see fruit born in each other's lives. Father, we pray that your grace would be manifested to us, that we would grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.